Hello, welcome to Journeys in Jazz, the podcast that discovers why jazz is still popular amongst listeners and performers today. In this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by the brilliant jazz saxophonist Jimmy Hastings. Jimmy has had an illustrious career in music, from working as a musician on migrant ships to Australia, to his time spent in Ken McIntosh's band and the BBC Radio Orchestra. Jimmy has a tale or two to tell about his extraordinary life so far. We discuss the camaraderie of musicians, how in Jimmy's experience they look after each other through times of sickness and good health. We talk about the importance of practice alongside the need to let things go when they don't go our way on stage. On top of that, Jimmy talks of his time spent working in Humphrey Littleton's band. This podcast was such a joy to make. I really hope you enjoy listening. Here we go. Jimmy, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. My pleasure. We were just talking about your lack of a Scottish accent. But you grew up in Aberdeen? No, I was was born in Aberdeen. No, you were born in Aberdeen. Born in Aberdeen, of an Aberdonian family. But my mother was Cornish. She, she insisted that we talk proper. So if ever we said anything that sounded vaguely Scottish, she'd pick us up on it. Did she have a Cornish accent? No, she had a terribly English accent. Frightfully English, in fact. And we all had to speak like that. And was she musical? She was no, keen, keen on she was anything but musical. musical learning. When she played the piano, it was uh, time to take to the hills. Everyone came around to listen. Apologies for the momentary technical hitch. At this point, Jimmy told me that when his father played the piano, everyone came round to listen. He was brilliant. That's him up there. There he is, on top there of is. your piano. Yep. Looking very dapper. What was his job? He was a bank manager in the Imperial Bank of India. That's, that's where I grew up for my first eight years in India. I was born in Aberdeen, but my mother came home to have me. Then we went out to India again. That was the first eight years of my life. I was in India. Oh, wow. So I grew up there with a wonderful childhood. So your earliest memories are there? Yeah. And what do you remember about that? I can't even imagine. Childhood, childhood memories, playing, you know, seeing the odd snake, seeing the odd scorpion, and you only stood on one of my bare feet once. Oh. Seeing chameleons in the garden, all sorts of creepy crawlies that were there, you know, which I've got a very healthy respect for. And then, then we used to go up to, to Darjeeling in, in, the, um, in the monsoon because you couldn't stay in, in, in the tropics in the monsoon. Had, mm-hmm. had to go, so we went up there. And that was lovely too. Totally different. It's like being in a different country, but it's still the same country. With a view of the Himalayas that, uh, I've, well, I've never seen the like of since. What was your house like? Near Madras, where, where, where I remember initially, a place called Coconada. I think it's called Kakanada now, but uh, it was called Coconada in those days. It was an ex-Rajas palace, apparently. It was huge. It was a bank house. It was enormous. And it was it. just you just and your parents? My parents and my two elder sisters. In a palace? It was pretty big. Pretty big, this place. But it was also the bank house. So the bank was there, too. Uh-huh. The bank was on the ground floor, and we were, we were in the upstairs. Right. But it was huge. And a huge compound as well. You couldn't call it a garden. It was a, there was a garden, but there was a compound as well. So a lot of land with it. Did you have servants? Yes. So that's how I grew up, thinking that was normal. Because you think it's normal, don't you? Well, whatever is your first experience, yeah. you would presume yeah. to be normal, wouldn't yeah. you? Yeah, came down to the bump when we came back to when we came back here. <laughs> We'd settled in, in, in Scotland when we came back, because my mother wanted to go to Devon, because she remembers Devon. Devon, not Cornwall? Well, she comes from Cornwall, but uh, her name was Code, uh, her, her maiden name. Yes. But uh, Which is a Cornish name, I think. Her memories all seem to be Devon. Plymouth, basically, but that's what you always used to talk about all the time anyway. Just over the border then. Just over the border, yeah. yeah. My father was Aberdeen. His family is Aberdeen. They're they're all from Aberdeen. 
you say your dad was a banker, but he yeah. could play piano really well and had an amazing ear, right? Well, I'd, I'd, I've never seen him stumped with a piece of music that was put in front of him. He played wow. it first time and never made any mistakes. Gosh. And so did he, he was schooled in music, I presume, Yes, then. he was, yes, yes. Yeah. Yes, I mean, uh, listening to my cousins up, up, in, uh, up in Aberdeen now, they say that he came from a family of six, and they lived in a button bend in Aberdeen. A button bend is a house with two rooms, a button and a bend. Well, I, I think there were, there were three rooms. There was probably a kitchen as well. It was tiny, and there was eight of them. Oh, my goodness. There were eight of yeah. them in that house. There were six kids and, and a mother and father. So three boys and three girls. And I remember one of the sisters saying, oh, we could never get near the piano because Uncle, because George was always practising it. <laughs> that was my father. So he grew up in this... In this very small cottage, presumably had limited means, you know. Yeah, well, in then, those days it would, yes. Outside loo and everything, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, in those days. But then he became a successful he became a, banker. He became a banker, know, yeah. So he really yeah. did well. What, what, he did, what, what he achieved in India was chalk and cheese. I mean, living mm. in a Rajas Palace sort of thing, you know. Yes. Which just happened to be the bank house. That's what, what, that's what they gave for the bank house. Yes. So we're very lucky there. Then we used to go up to... to there were two hill stations. One was Uttakamand in the south of India. We, we used to go there. We had a house there, a cottage there. And the other one was Darjeeling yes. in, in the north. And uh, I remember when I was very young, we used to go to Uttakamand. But when I was older, we used to go to Darjeeling. Mm-hmm. So I remember that better. It was built on a hillside and was always having landslides. Right. But uh, there again, I have childhood memories. I remember the films I saw there. There were two cinemas there. So we, we, we saw lots of, lots of things there. I remember seeing a tale of two cities there. It started off at one cinema, which broke down, and we saw the second, the second half of the, the other cinema. We all traipsed, <laughs> the whole audience traipsed the other cinema and saw the rest of it. But, uh, yeah. So when was this, Jimmy? Uh, this would have been... Uh, I was born in 1938. We'd have gone mm. out in 1938. We came back in 1945, just after the war. So you were there throughout? Throughout the war, war. Yeah, yeah. My father retired in 1944. I think it was, well, I think he retired in 1945 mm. and came home. And you remember it as a happy time, by mm. the sounds of it, and a stable time, mm. which is... And which the, war, is... the war to us wasn't really about the Germans, it was about the Japs. Yes. The Japanese. Because mm. they were about to, they were on the edge, they were in Burma, they, they were very close. Yes. And it was getting pretty frightening because we were terrified of the Japanese because they, they weren't very nice people in those days. It must have been a scary, a very scary time for your parents. Well, it was in those days, but I couldn't, I couldn't believe that we'd been at war with them when I went to Japan. They couldn't be nicer. They really could not be nicer. They were lovely, lovely people. And when did you go to Japan? Uh, my wife and I went out, in, I think it was 2004, yeah. 2005, okay. something like that. Yeah. Went out there and stayed for about a fortnight, just a holiday. You came back to Scotland, I guess? Scotland, yes. From we, India? We, we went to see him. We, we stayed for about two months yeah. with a maiden aunt, my father's sister, who, who, who never got married. I think he nearly killed her too. <laughs> <laughs> family of because I, I had another sister by then who was just born before we left India. She now lives in Rockford, Illinois. My other two sisters have since died because we're getting to that sort of age now. Sorry, you know? yeah. There we are. Uh, my younger brother, he's uh, he he was born in Scotland after we got home, and he's got this band now, but uh, caravan that is. Uh-huh. But uh, they're, they're touring at the moment. They're doing the fifty-year anniversary tour. Yes. I think they were in Glasgow last night, and I don't know where they are tonight, but uh, they're all over the country. So there's two musicians mm. from the siblings. Yep. yep. Presumably encouraged by your father. Uh, my mother mostly. Your mother. Encouraged, okay. yes. I mean, my, my father taught me, the ba- taught me the basics of music, all the fundamentals, you know, the, the rudiments. Obviously, you wanted to play the piano because there was one in the house. That was for you. That's just the only instrument that was in the house. Yeah. So, so yeah. we all learned to play the piano. 
when you got back from India, do you remember how it felt? Because you hadn't known anything different, right? You come, you come back no, to I Scotland. No, I know. I think my mother, my mother felt it most, most because she suddenly started having to cook and to yeah. clean and be a skivvy, you know. And you went to school with the normal school, right? I went, with... well, initially I went to, to my uncle's school, which was um, in Aberdeenshire. Yes. And we, we lived in, in um, Bamshire. Uh, after we left uh, my aunt's house in Aberdeen, uh, and she mopped up after we'd gone. <laughs> <laughs> we found this little house in the country, miles from anywhere, just in a little little country. It wasn't even a village, it was just a country sort of group of houses. And it was called Tom Navoolin, which is, uh, sounds a bit strange, it's, I think it's a Gaelic name. We stayed there. Uh, there's a whiskey called Tam Navoolin now at the moment, the, the, the right. distillery there. Uh, we stayed there for about, I think, two years. And then we moved up to a village called Tom and Tal, which is about five miles away from the six miles away from there. And that's where, I, that's where I learned to play the saxophone, where I grew up and I started doing gigs. Suddenly you started learning to play the saxophone, but you were... You were no. What, what happened? I went to school there. Yeah. I left my uncle's school. When we, when we moved to Tom and Tal, I went to the local school there. Yes. Till I was 15. When I was 15, I joined the Forestry Commission, got a, got a job. I didn't go on to further education, got myself a job. There was a member of the Forestry Commission who, um, he, he was Welsh, and he said, uh, have you ever heard, the, have you ever read The Melody Maker when he found out I was musical? And I said, I've never even heard of it. He said, oh, I've got some old copies I'll let you have. That's when I found out about jazz. From I, Melody I knew, Maker? Yeah, it, it, was, it was all about um, saxophones and trumpets and things in those days. Yeah. It's all guitars now, you know. But, it uh, is, yeah. But That's why days, I struggle to I know. believe it. Yeah. You know, in those days, it was all about, all about um, well, jazz. Where are we now? Where nineteen fifty, yeah, middle fifties, fifty-five, right. fifty-six. It was rock and roll, really. Mm. But ja- jazz was something I knew. I knew the name, obviously, you know, but I never realised how, how serious an art form it was until I started getting the melody maker. I see. And learning, um, learning new phrases like somebody's waxing a side or somebody's cutting a disc, and I thought it's a very strange language. <laughs> yeah. You know, they talk. It but still I, is. I suppose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd better get used to all this. <laughs> and then, then I started finding out about people playing and uh, their mental attitude towards it all. And I thought, oh, you didn't need a mental attitude, all you did was make it up as you went along. So I started thinking a bit more deeply then. Then I started listening. My first salutary lesson was uh, the Jerry Mulligan Quartet's Sal Playel concert. Mm-hmm. The review itemised almost every single note. Of, the, of that concert and just diagnosed it all and, and, and criticised the wrong word but uh, described it all and I thought oh well I think I'll go and get this record and see what, see what it's like and I got the record same with the Atomic Mr Basie exactly mm. the same I, I, I got both these records and listened to them and found out that what this person said was absolutely true and that made me start thinking differently about jazz totally differently and particularly with Jerry Mulligan I mean when Jerry Mulligan plays his improvisations are another tune on top of the original tune this is so melodic, it's just ridiculous. Yes. Yeah. So he, he's thinking on his feet all the time. And I, I thought, this, this is just wonderful. I've never heard anything like this before. It's absolutely genius, isn't it? Mm. Really, as an art form. So very complex, but mm. those people that are mastering it make it seem so effortless. Then I heard Jimmy Jufri. Oh. It's fascinating that you came to jazz through reading articles Yes. Most people say, well, there was this on the radio, or mm. I heard this, or that, and you've come from it from a very different angle. That It's um, a good job those reviews were good and those writers could sum up those albums so well. well not entirely, not entirely, because I, I did listen a lot, a hell of a lot. Melody Maker was the start of that listening. Melody Maker started yeah. uh, me taking it really seriously. Right. Until then, I'd, I'd listen to it and listen to it and listen to it, but I never really diagnosed it. 
I see. Now I started taking it to pieces and thinking, ah, oh, yeah. There's more to this. There's an awful lot more to this than I thought. Uh-huh. And I started listening to people's playing and I started hearing things I didn't hear before. Oh, this is magic. <laughs> and was that when you got a saxophone? Was it at that point? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I, I, I didn't know what to buy. I didn't know whether to get a saxophone, a trumpet or a trombone. I was going to get one of them because I, mm. I wanted something shiny that you could blow. And were you, were you a teenager, you said, about 15? I was, yes. Yes, yeah. I was about 15. So did you have to save up for that? I did. And uh, I bought myself an accordion because up until then I was playing the piano in all, in all mm. the local, local dance bands. And I, I was sick of going to all these village halls with out-of-tune pianos and having yeah. to transpose everything. Half the piano worked, the other half was out-of-tune, you know, uh-huh. very often. Yeah. And I was so tired of all this, it's really hard work. It would be much nicer if I could take my own instrument on a gig. So I thought, well, saxophone, great, but I have to, being Scotland, I'd have to learn to play the accordion. Or the fiddle. And I yes. didn't want to touch the fiddle. I thought, no, yeah. no, I've tried that, that's bad news. <laughs> yeah. But I think I'll have more success with the accordion. So I bought myself an accordion, learned to play that. And, and a saxophone, and a clarinet eventually. I was away then. And that was it? I started doing gigs then, yeah. Oh, Pretty quickly started doing gigs. It wasn't gigs. all that good. When did you come south? June the 15th, 1959, it came oh, wow. south. I came down to the Canterbury area. My mother and my sister and my brother had moved down there. I decided to come down for a holiday initially, and I decided to stay, because I started meeting musicians. The first musician I met was George Coe, who was Tony Coe's dad, in Canterbury. And uh, he, he, he had a band... He invited me to play with his band, and I used to play with his band, and I, I started earning a little bit of money then. And uh, I started getting gigs down there, you know, and yeah. that, was, that was the beginning of it. It was all very modest, and then uh, I got a job on a ship. I thought, yeah. you know, I've got, I've got to start really standing on my own two feet, and I wasn't really standing on my own two feet. I, I still needed subs from my mother, you know. Were you staying with your mum? No, not really. I, I, was, I was staying in a, in, a, in a pub in Canterbury, in a, in a room in, in right. a pub in Canterbury. Okay. I, I, want, yeah. I wanted to get this job. In, in the meantime, mind you, I'm, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Tony Coe, who George's son, was working with Humphrey Littleton at the time. And he was doing the job that I ended up doing in the end. And Tony's, Tony's one of my oldest, well, my oldest friend now, down here. Yeah. He's become a real family friend, an old friend. He's one, he's one person I've always looked up to. His playing is just different, totally different to anybody else. You couldn't mistake his playing which is what we're all after. We'd all like to be recognised instantly. Yes. Well, Tony, well, I'll play a bit of Tony in a minute. So anyway, I got to know Tony, and I got to know Joe Templey, who was also the, bar- who was the baritone player in Humpsband at the time. Tony decided to leave Humpsband, and he yes. asked if I'd be interested in it, in the job. And I said, I'm not good enough for that band. He said, don't be, don't be silly, of course you are. So I'll, I'll tell Humph about it. So you got me an audition with Humph. I didn't get the job. But no. it doesn't matter. I, I got the audition. You had that experience. And it was it's, yeah. it's ever so nice of Tony to, to do that, you know, because I, I held him in such high esteem. And uh, so I thought, well, maybe maybe there is something in this, you know, I'll, I'll keep at it. What did you have to do in that audition? I can't remember you... the tune, but it was jazz. Because Humph wasn't, wasn't much of a... Re- he didn't read at all. Okay. But he had a memory yeah. like, like an elephant. And if he learned something when he was 16, he would play it when he was 86. He could still play it note for note. That sort of a memory. I didn't get the job. Somebody else got it. It was fair enough. You know, there were lots of people yeah. going you after was, it. You were young then, weren't you? Know, you I were was. Then. I would have been in my 20s then, early 20s. Okay. And looking back on it, you're suddenly aware of the crossroads you, you have in, in, in your life. And you never know whether you've taken the right turning or not. And that one was a big crossroads for me because I'd love to have joined that band. But if I'd done that, I'd have been entrenched in the jazz world forever. As it was, um, I, I was entrenched in different worlds for instance, I joined the BBC Radio Orchestra. I was with Ken McIntosh's band. Yeah. I worked in a nightclub. I did all these other different things, yeah. which I wouldn't have done if, if, if I joined Humps Band. And all that happened 
after you worked on some cruise ships. Is that yes, right? yes, yeah. yes. I'm just interested in this on a personal note because I think that when you were on cruise ships, mm-hmm. one, there can't have been that many cruise ships. And now there's loads. It wasn't a cruise ship as such. It, it was an immigrant ship going out to it? Australia. Yeah. Wow. In the days of assisted passages. Yes. Where you'd pay £10, but you were committed to the country for two years. Yes. And so uh, you were on those ships those going ships from, on, what, Southampton? Going from Southampton to, to Wellington and New Zealand and coming back. Oh, my back. goodness. So you must have witnessed all sorts of people changing their lives forever. Mm. My, my elder sister was one of them. She travelled on the ship with you? No, no, she travelled okay. m- much later, much later uh-huh. than that. Yeah. But she and her family went out to Australia. Uh-huh. And her family is still there. Living in the heat is all very well, but all the creepy crawlies that go with it, I'd rather do without that, thank you very much. Yeah. I'd ra- rather live in a colder yeah. country. But there's a lot of sea days, Jimmy. You did. You lived on the on the boat for an amazing amount of time. You must yeah. have done. Well, we used to have 10-day stretches at sea, and then we'd get maybe a couple of ports or something. The fir- first trip I did, our first port of, port of call from Southampton was Trinidad. Then um, Curacao. Yes, lovely, yeah. Then the Panama Canal, uh-huh. then Panama itself, then Tahiti, right. then Fiji, then Wellington, then Sydney, Melbourne, Perth, Durban, Cape Town, Las Palmas and home. Southampton to Trinidad was 10 days, Panama to Tahiti was 10 days, Perth to um, Durban was 10 days, Yeah. and Cape Town to Las Palmas was 10 days. We played every day. We, we had to entertain the, entertain the people. So you we were working to, all day? We used to do morning concerts and evening dances. And did you find that your playing just naturally improved oh, by yes. the fact that you were it performing yeah. twice a day? Three and I was able day. to practice yeah. as well. Yeah. 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 I'm one of these people, I'm not brilliantly self-motivated. Mm-hmm. I mean, I will, I will establish a routine and stick to it, but it doesn't take an awful lot to knock me out of that routine. It sounds like me. <laughs> <laughs> I do my best. I try my best. I do my best. It gives you time, doesn't it, working on a cruise ship? Because you don't have to think about the daily no. things, you know, you're not... No. Commuting anywhere, you're not. You don't have to go and buy food or anything. You don't have to buy food. It's all done. It's all done for yeah. you. You're institutionalised. In I have to ask you how your cabin was because that's what everyone always asks me about cruise ships. Well, I shared a cabin. It was lovely. Yeah. It was what great. was it? Yeah. Did you have a porthole? Yeah, we did. Oh wow. Oh yeah, we we're just above sea level. And how many people roughly were on the ships? Do you remember? I think there were three hundred on this particular ship. It yeah. wasn't huge, but it was no. big in those days. Yeah. It was the first ship with with the with the funnel at the back. Shore Savile Line it was. It was called the Southern Cross. Gosh. And did it give you um the chance to save some money? No. No. It's impossible to save any money at all. I find anyway. Unless I wanted to live the life of a hermit. So you because you were spending money on in well, meeting people, having and drinks and things. Having you drinks know, yeah. and doing all that. Yeah. Which is the same as it is now, really. No, nothing changes. No. <laughs> nothing changes. You didn't actually have to spend money as per se. You used to they just run up a bill for you and you paid it at the end of the voyage. Yeah, that was the same. same. Or they paid it for you and gave you what was left over, which was yeah. not an awful lot. It's always a bit, yeah, could it's, be a bit depressing at times. Well, yeah, that. yeah. <laughs> After seven voyages around the world, places like uh, Tahiti and Fiji were beginning to sound like bus stops. And I thought, mm, where are we tomorrow? Feet? Oh, I've been there. Oh, no. So I thought, time, time to stop. That's when I came to London proper. Right. That's when I learned to starve. Did and you just get off in Southampton and go straight to London, or was there a uh, bit of kind No, of I think I came, I came to London straight away. You did? Yeah, from, yeah. 
I knew some people up here and I stayed with them, which was a fr- uh-huh. friend friends of my parents, friend of my mother's, who they, they used to know in India. They lived in, in Marylebone. So I lived there for a while and uh, I got the odd job here and there, in a nightclub here. And, and then I started going up Archer Street, which everybody did in those days, all musicians looking for work, used to go up Archer Street on a Monday, Monday afternoon. It was absolutely teeming with musicians. I didn't get very much there, but I always got drunk there because musicians were very generous with other musicians, particularly if they knew you didn't have any money. You'd never go away from there sober, ever. Yeah. If you enjoyed a drink, that's the way it was. (laughs) And that really was the way to network, wasn't it? Because you didn't have... Nobody had a mobile phone. No. A lot of people didn't have phones, I guess, either. So the only way was by seeing people. Well, that was another thing, too. Because when I said I came from Canterbury, I mean... Going right back to when I first came down, um, I'd been studying Harry Hayes's uh, saxophone method up in Tom and Tull. Twelve lessons technique and eight lessons hot playing. So right. I thought, well, when, I, when I come down to, to England, I want, want to go and meet Harry Hayes. So yeah. I went up to Harry Hayes, his shop, yeah. in, in Archer Street. It's on Archer Street, right? Well, actually, it was in Great Windmill Street, but that's the next... No, no, it wasn't Archer Street. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. Archer Street, yeah. And I used to go up a fire escape to get into it. It was a sort of back entrance yeah. to it. Went up there, and who should be working there? I've never met him before. Willie Garnett. Oh, wow. Who's just died. Yeah. Sadly. Yeah. One of my oldest friends. And Wonderful. And that's where you met him? That's where I met him. Oh. And he was running a rehearsal band, and he asked me to join join that band. And I said I was living in Canterbury. So I came up to it and did it once. And I thought after a while, that's too much for schlap doing this, just for a rehearsal band. But thinking back on it, I think that was the worst, mis- worst decision I ever made not to do that. Because I'd have got known in the London scene by then, for better or for worse. Mm. And maybe it might have made my path into London a little bit easier. But you made it nonetheless, didn't you? Yes, in the end, yes. The, the Jewish community kept me, kept me alive. Because all the bar mitzvahs and Jewish weddings I did... Initially, you know, they were very generous. I mean, they fed and watered you like nobody's business. I know there are only one or two a week, maybe. Maybe one a fortnight or whatever, you know. But I used to look forward to them because I always used to know I'd have a good meal there. And in those days, good meals were hard to come by. But eventually, you know, we suffer for our art, don't we? It sounds like, yeah, you, you knew what you wanted very much. I didn't you want know. to do anything else. No. But they did say, if you want to work in London, and this worked in those days, everybody told me this, if you want to work in London, you must have a London telephone number. No point in living in Canterbury, because you won't get any work in London. That's why I had to move to London. Yeah, and do your bar mitzvahs. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And slowly, obviously, you progressed and you knew more people and you made it onto that scene that you, you wanted to. What actually happened, it was an Archer Street, strange enough, somebody said, uh, there's a trumpet player in France... He's doing American bases in France, and he's looking for a tenor player. Are you interested? Well, I didn't have any work, so I said, of course I'm interested, yeah. Yeah, I'd love to. His name is Ronnie Carroll. So I got that job, and I worked, ended up working for him for a long time because he did his tour of France. He, we went to about five places in France, and then after that, he had a summer season in Jersey. Then after that, he, he, he got a job at the Latin Quarter in, in Wardour Street. Mm-hmm. So I got that as well as so I was working for this, and that was my inn to London. And when I was working at, at, the, at the Latin Quarter, I also had a job working during a day at Drum City in Shaftesbury Avenue. And that was a, that was another thing I wouldn't have done without. It was, working at a shop is something else. You, you can see people, you know, and the, the salesmanship too. They wanted me to sell these saxophones. There were six of them. They had to be sold. Well, I can't sell them. I don't have any faith in them. I blew them. They were out of tune, you know. So, oh, can you sell them? And I said, no, I can't do that. Sorry. So I lost that job eventually. But it meant you were, I guess, meeting a lot of people. You were in town. Yeah. That that job would have given you yeah. opportunity to spend more time with musicians. First time I came across Ronnie Scott's sense of humour. Just had a fire at Ronnie Scott's club in, in, um, in Frith Street. He just moved there. Right. And uh, the manager of the shop, 
Ronnie came in for something and the manager said to him, sorry to hear about your fire, Ronnie. And Ronnie says, so am I, shouldn't have happened till next week. <laughs> oh dear. But that, that was Ronnie, you know, yeah. the wonderful dry sense of humour. <laughs> <laughs> and at that time, when you started, you left the shop and you, you were obviously playing more and more and more. You had a whole... You, you had so many different jobs, right? You were a freelance musician at that time. I was a freelance and musician, And it yeah. wasn't just jazz that you were playing, right? It was... Everything. Yeah, everything. Anything oh, and yeah. everything. Anything and everything, yeah. Yeah. At that time, would you have considered yourself still a jazz musician or did you think, well, I'm just a, a jobbing musician? Like, I consider know? myself a jobbing musician. Yeah. Because yeah. right, about that time, I got a job at the Empire in Leicester Square with Ken McIntosh, who was, uh, who was another big name in mm. those days. Yeah. A wonderful saxophone player. He yeah. taught me an awful lot about the saxophone. So I got hit that job for two years. There was a saxophone player in the BBC Radio Orchestra called Art Ellison. He was Canadian. Tenor saxophone player. He was leaving the, the, the BBC Radio Orchestra and, and uh, I went in for the audition and got the job. So I was there for four years and that was a wonderful experience. For a start, I was working during the day. I never worked there at night. So I could do gigs at night. Yeah. Which is wonderful. Busy. Mm. So from doing nothing, I was. Well, I needed to be busy because by this time I was married and I, I, I had one child, you know, one daughter. Yeah. By then, you know, so I needed to be earning money. But you weren't in, at home very often, I'm imagining. You were uh, fairly busy. I was really, yeah. 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 As much yeah. as anybody. And where were you living in London at that time? Maidervale. Quite central. And that was close mm. to, I guess, where you were working? Yeah. There was one morning I, w- I woke up at nine o'clock and I was supposed to be at Aeolian Hall at half past nine and I made it. Great. That's not bad for London, <laughs> is it? it? Most people... It was a ten-minute journey in the tube. Yeah. Fantastic. Oh, wow. I was, I was lucky with the trains. One came yeah. in. So the Radio Orchestra did a lot of, I'm, I'm guessing, live broadcasts and recordings. Mm. It was all broadcasts and recordings. Well, all broadcasts, yeah. Yeah. So you yeah. didn't do, you didn't perform to a, a live audience? Yes, really we did. Oh, often. yes. Oh, yes. did a lot well. Once a week, yeah. Okay. The full radio orchestra. That, that, yeah. was, that was about 76 of us. It was a lot of us. A big string section. Um, and would you be backing artists? Mm. Or, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, that's, that's where we did the Tony Bennett concert at the Festival Hall. Right. That was wonderful. Nelson Riddle was conducting. So it was wonderful. And he had a wonderful way of conducting, Nelson Riddle. He used to do this. Oh, tiny conducting. That's all he did. Jimmy's just waving his finger. His first moving finger. Moving his index finger. Yeah. Okay. That's all he did. And, and he, it worked. It worked. You, you had to pay attention. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. And am I right in thinking that the BBC Big Band was born from that Yes, orchestra? it was. Yeah. It was yeah. It's the BBC Radio Big Band, and we did, uh, we did jazz clubs. Did two jazz clubs. Was, with, that, was that in existence at the same time? Were you doing both of those things at the same yes, time? Yes, we were, yeah. 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 Oh, right, OK. The BBC Radio Big Band was the dance band section of the radio orchestra. Yeah. Right, I see. That's what they called it anyway. And when we all got together, it was like uh, an MGM studio orchestra. Yeah. It really was huge and, and c- could cope with anything. Uh-huh. Anything except anything really classical, you know, because that was uh, out, out of our range. But most of the light, light classical music was what we did. And you were just reading in that. I'm just thinking about the fact that you're self-taught, being able to I, read. I wasn't completely self-taught. My father taught me how to read yeah, on the piano. Right, okay. So I learned yeah. reading in both, both clefs, but I was self-taught on the saxophone. Yeah, it's impressive. Nobody's completely self-taught because you, you are you are taught by the people you know, you, you you people you meet, and other saxophone players who tell you this and tell you that and tell you the next thing, and you you, you feed off them and you take this in, and if you don't, you're you're a damn fool. They're great supporters <coughs> of each other on the whole, aren't they? Musicians. Oh yeah. yeah. Everybody. Absolutely. Yes. Everybody looks after each other. Oh yeah. 
on the whole. And the people I, that don't, again, you know, fall by the wayside, don't they? Actually, there's one thing um, I really have to mention here. When, when I was uh, I was living in uh, Muscle Hill at this time, and I was doing a show called A Chorus Line at Drury Lane, and I became very ill. It's like a stroke I had. Oh, gosh. I was paralysed down my left side, and I couldn't speak properly, and I couldn't do anything, so I couldn't play. So all of a sudden, I had no money coming in. And do you know what? Every single day, a musician would turn up in the door from some organisation or other with a wad of notes in their hand for me. Oh. When was that? 1978, I think it was. Right. And uh, January 1978 until March 1978, when I, when I was all right to go back again, go yeah. back to work. But yeah. the thing is, we all, if, if somebody's ill, we all club together yeah. and we all, we all give something. Yeah. But you don't realise the strength of it until you're on the receiving end. Mm. You suddenly realise that you've, you've accepted something you could never possibly pay back. The only way you can do it is to give when you're asked to. You know? Well, that's it. But it's, it's a wonderful thing to be. It makes you realise you're not alone, doesn't it, in those Well, they say it's an insecure business, and, but and from that point of view, it's a very secure business. Yeah. Do you find that that camaraderie is, attractive, is as attractive and important as the musical side of being a musician? Oh, very much so. Very much so. Yeah. One doesn't come without the other, does it? You know, I don't think yeah. it does, no. It's in the nature of a musician, I think. Yeah. Because it, it could happen to any one of us. Mm. But mm. I don't think that's the reason. I think it's just the generosity of spirit. That's all it is. Yeah. We've talked about a lot about you being part of lots and lots of different ensembles. Was there ever a point when you wanted to lead your own ensemble? You oh, know? yeah, I've, I've done so quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. You meet someone like I met John Horner, for instance. We started yeah. a duo and then we started yeah. a quartet and yeah. a quintet. And, uh... and the first time you did that, was that a very nerve-wracking experience or were you just excited to be leading the band? It was yeah. just making music. Just making music and that was it. Because Never thought when, about it. Where jazz is involved, everyone's pulling in the same direction, and everyone's as strong as everyone else. Yeah. And and nobody's going nobody's going to deliberately throw a spanner in the works. If they do, they can't help it. That's just something that happens. You know? Yeah. Jazz is not is not synonymous with perfection. So if something goes wrong in jazz, it's all jazz. That's a really nice way of looking at it. Well, that's what Sonny Rollins said. I mean, Tony Coe told yeah. me that. He yeah. said um, Sonny Rollins says because I was playing with him once. He had a gig at the Bull's Head, and I just had a hernia operation. And he came to see me and said, uh, I said, are you coming to the gig tonight? I said, of course I am. He said, you're going to bring your tenor with you, aren't you? I said, you must be joking. I said, yeah, I haven't played it for ages. Said, if you're not going, then I'm not going. So this was Tony, you know. So in, in the end, he persuaded me to take, take my tenor with me. And I took it out squeaking and making all the awful noises all night. And I was complaining to him about it. I said, this is terrible, Tony. I'm not playing anymore. Don't, he said, don't be silly. He said, Sonny Rollins says squeaks are all jazz. So Sonny Rollins says, this if is good enough for that. me. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> when you think of Sonny Rollins, he's not afraid of, of, uh, of making mistakes. I mean, there have been times, I remember talking to a, to a clarinet player. I said, Sonny Rollins is in town. She's a girl. And, and I said, are you going to see him? She said, absolutely not. I said, why? She had enough of him last time. For 20 minutes, he played the, the tune of Isn't She Lovely? It just wasn't yeah. happening to him, so he just kept playing the tune. And this is the attitude. But have you got the courage of your convictions to do that? Mm. He was big enough to be able to do that. Mm. I'm not. But well. when, when, when you see that happening, you think, right, OK, so it's not happening tonight. OK, you, you mustn't be too despondent, because one night it is going to happen. And the night that it does happen, it's so easy. Everything is so easy to do. Yeah. It just happens automatically in spite of ever. you. And when yeah. it doesn't happen, no matter how hard you try, it won't happen. Yeah. It just gets worse. And you just have to go with the flow, don't but you? But isn't that life? Yes. <laughs> That's life itself. It is. 
It's not just music. But because jazz is a spontaneous art form, it's supposed to be. I mean, it, it isn't with a lot of people. You know, you, you can hear the practice of what, they, what they're playing and it's just, everything's very rehearsed and just too glib for words. I like to hear somebody struggling. Yeah. <laughs> me, it yeah, means more to me. It's very, it's, it's such a good, you've got such good points. I, you know, it's great advice for so many people listening and, I mean, for me. I was playing on Tuesday and I came off the stage and it was one of those things where I was just joining in for one song. Mm-hmm. One song that I'd written, but because of the fact that I'd written it as well, when it came for me to play, and I'd practice it, practice it, practice it, and it, for me, I just thought, oh, that was rubbish. Mm. I came off the stage and I was really angry with myself. And then I just realised everyone else is having a really nice time here, so I won't say anything to anybody else, because everyone else is happy, mm. so it's fine. Mm. But there was that just, oh, you know, that feeling of, that's... That's a. I'm I'm frustrated with myself, but what you're saying is it's just it's pointless mm. being frustrated with yourself over that. Yeah, absolutely and, not. No, and you just carry on. You you can't undo what you've done. And also, if you don't have those moments, then you don't maybe appreciate the other moments when it absolutely does go, as you say, just to plan and everything falls into place, and you're not even trying. Mm. That mm. is one of the most joyous things about playing this music, I think. But that won't it? happen if you don't practice, or it will happen, but not not so well. Yeah. And practicing, yeah. practicing and playing are two totally different things. You, mu- you mustn't keep practicing up to speed, otherwise you just practice your mistakes. You practice slowly, and you do long notes, and you play everything slowly, and you listen to every single note you play, every nuance of that note. And do you find that... You've done a lot of teaching, haven't you, I should say. Mm. Do you find that your students, on the whole, manage to take that on board? Do they have an eagerness to learn about jazz history from the beginning and listen to those early players and have that patience, or is it quite an instant thing do you find that everyone's very eager to get i think initially it's an instant thing yeah but you have to slow that down you have to say yeah. hey, hang on a minute you know this is a, this took a little bit longer to, to to do than than you think yeah and you can you can't blame somebody for thinking like that because that's the way it appears because it looks easy when they see people doing it well yeah it does i remember the yeah. first first person i ever heard of ronnie scott's club was bobby wellins uh-huh. and i thought i've never heard so many notes in my life He's played with the most phenomenal technique. It's just mm. incredible. And I met Bobby years later. We were doing a television thing with Annie Ross up in Glasgow. And they're all Scottish saxophone players. It was Duncan Lamont, Tommy Whittle, Bobby Wellens and myself. We were playing with four brothers. Mm. And he was singing and we were all playing it. And I was chatting to Bobby. And he, had a, he had a unique sound. He had a sort of smoky sort of sound. And I said, can I try your mouthpiece, Bobby? Because I'm, I'm interested in your sound. He said, yeah, sure. I said, can I try yours? Said, yeah, so we swapped the mouthpiece and... He got his sound on my mouthpiece, and I got my sound on his. Yeah, that's it. So it's you, not the not the instrument or the mouthpiece or the setup or anything. It's Very you. much, yeah. No, I realise. I learned that. that yeah, then. that is a a thing that you find with people that perhaps haven't played much that they do have a tendency to really focus in on on those things. What saxophone they're playing, what mouthpiece mm. they're using, what mm. reed they're using, and all mm. of those things without that awareness that they're just going to sound like them at the end of the day. We should talk about the, the lockdown. You, you've been here in Woking. Before that, were you working numerous times per week? Or was it mainly yeah. the weekends? Well, when I joined Humps Band in 1993, yeah. I was doing about three gigs a week. Yeah. Two, three gigs. But so then... we should say that you joined Humps Band mm-hmm. after the audition however many years before. 20 oh, yeah. years, 30 yeah. years before? Yeah. Did you have to re-audition or was he, did he just invite you to come and play by that uh, point? Hump rang me up. And he then, rang you up. He rang, would you like to join my band? And I said, well, it's not as if I haven't done an audition. <laughs> so he remembered you? From... Oh, he re- oh, yes. Yeah. He, re- he remembered yeah. all right. He was, he was quite happy about that. 
Yeah, you probably find it quite charming. Well, anything with any humour to it, Hump was was up for it. Very strong sense of humour. He was as he seemed, completely, was he? Oh, yeah, completely, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That was it. That was him. Yeah, yeah. How fabulous. Yeah, he was good. you were in his band for a long time, right? 1993 till... When did he die? 2008? 2008, yeah. yeah. Looking up at a picture of Hump, also on the piano. Further along from your dad. You can quote yeah. what he says. There's a lovely picture of him and it says, As we journey through life, discarding baggage along the way, we should keep an iron grip to the very end on the capacity for silliness. It preserves the soul from desiccation. <laughs> Wise words there. Oh, yeah. From that wonderful man. Yep. So you spent a long time laughing then for... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> for all of those years. But don't take me... Nice he, he took his music very seriously. But he, yeah. he, he, he didn't just do that. He, he did lots of other things because mm. uh, we used to have lots of holidays from the band. Right. And week, weeks on end where we wouldn't be working because Humph was doing I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue or something, you know. Uh-huh. Or, or, yeah. or broadcast. He used to broadcast every, yes. every week. Best of Jazz, I think it was. Radio 2. Yes, so he was busy. He was very busy, yeah. Mm. yeah. He deserved to be, too. He was an icon. When you joined, did you have that idea in your head that you probably would be doing this for a long time? Like that when you got that position in that band? I was happy there. I didn't want to move on. And yeah. I was quite happy there. Because you'd come to it later as well, because you'd done all of those things, as you said. Yes, be- I had, yeah. Before. Yeah, and th- there were other things going on. There was always the odd film session or recording session or something, yeah. you know, lurking around somewhere. They, they grew less and less uh, over the years, but then uh, the technique of, of, of it all changed. There was a time when I used to go out practically every week recording with some band I'd never heard of. Even now, I, I get emails from somebody I've never heard of saying, oh, you're on so-and-so, and I think, Am I? So I go onto Amazon, there it is, and I buy it, and then so I am, you know. Interesting that you can look at all of that stuff now, though, that you can go on the internet and find these things that you probably thought were lost forever Mm. or you'd never hear again. Mm. Fantastic. Yeah, what a career it's been for you. The pandemic must have been hard. For everybody. For everybody, but yeah, to have to stay. And you're here in Woking now as well, we haven't talked about that. Not in London anymore? No, no, not in London anymore, no. So what made you move? Um, I think that um, John Major putting interest rate up all the time made me move. Right, yeah. <laughs> I couldn't afford the mortgage in, in Archway anymore. We, we bought a house which was uh, used to be an old French polisher's workshop and we did it up. And uh, it, it was a strange, strange little house because the front of it was only a door wide. Yeah. But the back of it fanned out like that, you know, so it's, 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 it's a lovely little... Yeah. Uh, it was original, it was a totally original sort of house. Yeah. And uh, we moved from there. I, I moved down here in 1998, and that house is worth over a million now. Oh, wow. From Daspard Road. Yeah, I know. If I'd lived there, but I couldn't, just couldn't afford it. I had to move. My bills are piling up and you can't pay them. You've got to do something about it. You? No, no, these things happen. They do, yeah. We're maybe coming out of the pandemic. Oh, yes. And you're... Looking forward to a few days. Only one the... hand. The other hand cancels it out. Oh, Left sorry, hand only. I didn't know that. Okay, touch wood with one hand. So my mother used I to say, I remember anyway. that. Okay. And the same with fingers crossed, only left hand. <laughs> okay, don't cross everything then. No, no, oh, no, no. You cancel right. it all out. <laughs> okay. You obviously don't want to retire. <laughs> I don't know the meaning of the word. No. Because I haven't got it right that. yet. No. When, no. I, when I get it right, I might retire. I might consider <laughs> it. But until I do, no. So you're going to keep playing, and any more? Are you looking forward to any doing some more writing or doing anything like that in the future? Always hoping to write something new. Yeah, 
And do you put your mind to that, or is it just something that happens naturally? You say you play the piano every day a bit mm. anyway. Mm. When you write, do you tend to write on the piano? Funnily enough, a bit of both. Right. I, I wrote one tune, and it just anybody who's ever had inspiration would understand this. I just wrote it down. Yeah. I didn't have to think, I just wrote it down, and yeah. there it was. It was, yeah. it was there already. So much yeah. so that I thought, is this a tune I've heard before somewhere? Yeah. But it wasn't. Yeah. And other times I've struggled, and, or I've got an idea and developed it and worked on it. Most of the tunes I've ever written have come to me in my head. That's great, it does. That's pure inspiration, that is. But you can't rely on that. <laughs> that's, that's the thing, but it's wonderful when that happens, isn't it? Oh, well, it's wonderful to talk to you, Jimmy. Thank My pleasure. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you for spending all this time chatting to me about your fascinating life, because it is. Oh, I don't know about that. It is. Absolutely wonderful. Oh, one last question that I was thinking of. Do you think that your life as a musician makes you... When you look at your friends and people around you, which I'm guessing are mostly musicians, do you think it makes you seem younger than other people your age by being a musician and spending so much time with so many different age groups? Yes, I think it does. Yeah. Yeah. I think music does Whatever keep you Whatever age young. you are. Whatever age you are, you're mentally um, still immature. <laughs> <laughs> one, one day I promise I'll grow up. I think we should end it there. Okay. Thank you, Jimmy. My pleasure. <laughs>